At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, <laughs> I could really use Current. <laughs> I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot button internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center here in the heart of a, a very somber Santa Monica, California. And um, it is a, uh, a lot has changed here in a matter of one week since we last spoke. Um, these type of events as what happened here in Santa Monica on Friday happen um, in all places across the country. And just because you have a beautiful sunset doesn't mean that you're immune from um, the tragedies that happened here on Friday where uh, a deranged young man um, stepped into a house, killed his family, and then stepped into a school and killed more people. Um, it, just, it was a bizarre day. Um, the day ended with... Uh, there was a just down the street from Santa Monica College where the, the final shootout occurred is um, Santa Monica High School, which was graduating that day. And um, I had a neighbor who was graduating, and then I said to her, the future is yours, and let's just hope that when you graduate, um, your children <coughs> will not um, have to endure um, or see some of the things that we've seen in the last few years. So... Um, our hearts go out to everyone here in Santa Monica who has been affected by it. And, um, but we are here to talk about cyber law and business. And we have a, a lot to cover. And there's uh, a lot of news going on. You may have heard a lot about PRISM and, and the national security um, agencies, um, wireless wiretapping. And so we're going to be talking about that with Russell Burgos, who is a. Um, renowned scholar in national security affairs. Um, he actually is one of the few professors who can be named when John Wooden, in the same breath, um, he actually um, gave the, um, the John Wooden, if this was my last lecture, um, presentation this year at UCLA, which is usually one of the more popular professors at UCLA has chosen to present 
and he actually did a great job. And um, Rusk has a, a national security background. He um, He's a veteran with um, 18 years in the Army and active in reserve. Um, he served in Iraq, um, overseeing communications, current intelligence, and um, civil military operations for Combat Aviation Battalion. Um, he's also written extensively on national security, and he teaches in UCLA's Global Studies and Middle East and North Africa Studies program. So um, we're glad to have Russ here. Russ, are you with us? I am. Thank you for having me. Um, you know, Russ, our, our very first show um, that we had um, some three years ago, we, we were talking about the issue of privacy with the FTC, and they had just launched – a uh, whole new round of roundtables on the issue of privacy because um, the technology had changed so much since they last really looked at it carefully. You had the advent of social media and all these new um, data intermediaries, and they, they felt they had to get their arms around it. Um, and it just seems that in looking at this national security, um, this NSA issue, that it, it – this seems to be a similar issue that um, government constantly is trying to get their arms around um, technology and what it means and, and what should they should do about it. Um, policymakers always seem to be a few steps behind. And, and so there seems to be a lot of reaction to this NSA um, issue, but it's unclear whether um, what exactly is going on there. So I thought maybe we try to walk through it. Um, but first, Russ, why don't you just give us a little – I know I gave you a brief summary of your background. Why don't you just give us a, a little um, USA version of, of your background? Uh, well, when I first went into the Army in 1983, I was detailed into satellite communications. And so I've always had a background in the Army um, in military communications, terrestrial and extraterrestrial in a sense. Um, I've worked on wire systems, internet I was a qualified internet security officer. Uh, I had rather a lot of training on issues of internet security. And so that was one of the primary functions of the work I did when we deployed into Iraq in 2003. Um, I've also taught at UCLA uh, courses on homeland security, uh, international security, terrorism, and obviously cybersecurity uh, is a growing and increasingly important part of that. And so I've also had students who've done their thesis uh, on various issues of electronic and cybersecurity. So when this thing broke in The Guardian, uh, although I suppose arguably it broke for the second or perhaps even third time, um, you know, I, I was especially interested in it because it's an issue that I've dealt with uh, personally. I've also dealt with it uh, in interactions with senior leadership from various Middle Eastern armed forces. So in the, the, the issue that came up in The Guardian was um, what is known as a, a regulatory system known as FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Security Act, and um, um, Surveillance Act, excuse me. And let's, a little bit about the history and a couple of things that, keep, that we listed to keep in mind. Obviously, um, we're a nation of laws and we are governed by um, those laws, and one of the laws of it was starting point is the the Fourth Amendment, which um, protects Americans from unreasonable search and seizure. And in that context, um, following the um, Nixon administration, there was a, a a series of investigations conducted by the Senate under the Senate Intelligence Committee chairman named Frank Church, 
And so it's sometimes called the church commission or a church committee. And it made, um, revealed a number of abuses that had occurred in the intelligence community during Sonora and even before. And out of that came FISA. And that was, um, signed into law in 1978 under President Carter. And it established, um, certain exceptions and certain procedures for having warrants, um, issued to engage in, um, surveillance when concerned foreign intelligence. And um, specifically required a um, – had created a court, a FISA court, um, and required a finding of probable cause that the target of the surveillance was a foreign power or agent of a foreign power and the places that the surveillance requested to use would be used by that power or its agent. And um, there had to be certain steps to minimize um, the likelihood that this would capture U.S. Um, citizens in the surveillance. So that was um, the regime we started off with, and then 9-11 happens, and we start seeing um, a lot of attention focused in this area by the Bush administration. Um, Russ, uh, do, you, do you think that's a fair characterization? I do, and I think the important part in what you said is, I mean, uh, the law is is outside of my my bailiwick, but you know it's it's not much of a surprise to find that a lot of the debate hinges upon uh, the interpretation of what constitutes reasonableness. Right. Um, and the other piece I, I think that's important about FISA, and and it's what you really led with, which is the fact that government is in a sense always behind the technology curve. Espionage uh, in 1975 was done in the old-fashioned cloak-and-dagger, you know, spy versus spy way. Um, And so the notion of an agent of a foreign power, you know, clearly they were thinking of the Soviet Union and they were thinking of, you know, Soviet spies being run out of the residentura in the embassy in Washington. Uh, What 9-11 signaled was not the beginning, but I think in a sense the end of a shift in the nature of global conflict that started with the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And that was a shift from global conflict that's nation-state-centric to what's sometimes called asymmetric conflict. Uh, Bin Laden, you know, by definition, was not an agent of a foreign power. Uh, In fact, if anything, he'd co-opted a foreign power insofar as he had a tactical alliance with Mullah Muhammad Omar and the Taliban in Afghanistan. So, you know, there is the problem that FISA is a legal regime that was constructed to ferret out spies and saboteurs. Uh, But one can now be a spy or a saboteur without, you know, leaving the comfort of the nearest coffee shop. And um, and so that was one of the things that were was addressed in there was a number of amendments to FISA mm-hmm. after 9-11. And that was one of the things that w- were addressed. But then there, even under that type of regime, there's um, the Bush administration still felt that it was chafing uh, under FISA, despite the fact that um, during the period of 1979 to 2006 of 22,990 applications for warrants to the FISA court. Only five were um, rejected. (laughs) That's right. And and so the Bush administration gets caught in 2005 um, circumventing FISA. And so then you have this whole 
political battle. And, and in the process, we learned that um, part of the circumvention was more or less directly connecting a pipe to AT&T's communications. And you had a, a quite a, a political um, brouhaha over that. And and so what happened after that is, is somewhat of a, a scaling back or a liberalization of Pfizer, if you will. Um, and, and that's what we have now. Mm-hmm. Is that, is that, you... I, think that's, I think that's a fair summary. I, I think, and, and I certainly have no vested interest in defending the Bush administration, I think the sense of chafing under the presumptive limitations of FISA was in large part a reflection of the uncertainty uh, attendant to what this era of, of asymmetric, non-state-centric conflict was like uh, and what the nature of the threat was. I mean, I tend to think of it as being a piece with uh, what Ron Suskind described as, as Vice President Dick Cheney's 1% doctrine. Uh, in, you know, it, there is a propensity in government, especially in the history of the American government in times of security threats, to perhaps overestimate the scope of the threat in the face of uncertainty. I mean, you know, we can think of the Palmer raids earlier in the 20th century, for right. example, uh, or, or even the Alien and Sedition Acts much earlier than that. So there's this sort of, well, I want to err on the side caution um, sensibility that, that pervades government. And I think that's what puts government in tension with civil society in terms of defining what are the scope and the boundary conditions of reasonability and search. Um, I, I think with respect to what the Bush administration was doing and now what the Obama administration do, is doing, in part, it's also a function simply of the scale and the rapidity of of technological change. Um, you know, there there was a study done in 2011 by Pew of Internet use uh, among Americans aged 18 to 24, and they found that the average American in that age group sends about 110 text messages a day. And, you know, there's around 43 million people in that age demographic. Uh, Portio Research, which is a market research firm, estimated that 7.8 trillion text messages were sent globally in, in 2011. Um, there's something like 50 million websites being added to the internet every year. 10 million tweets were sent just during the opening ceremony of the London Olympics. So if you are a security person um, who is aware that your adversaries are communicating via these media and you look at these kind of numbers, um, it's not difficult to understand why they would find uh, the you know, extraordinarily weak restrictions that FISA imposes on them uh, frightening. I mean, that's, that's not by way of justifying it necessarily, but I certainly can understand how you know, even the need to stop searching for a day uh, in, in a global cyber community where there are a billion smartphones uh, would create a sense of, of intolerable risk. Now, um, jumping forward, you know, to talk about the actual leak that occurred, and it was it revealed that there's been a program called PRISM that goes back at least until 2007, and that um, the Obama administration contends is, is consistent and it has been approved by the FISA court, um, which just merely involves monitoring um, foreign 
activity, um, but using a much broader, um, I guess, database than what we previously thought they'd been using, specifically using such internet tools as Skype, um, Yahoo, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, um, YouTube, AOL, Apple, and Facebook. And, um, and so how would you characterize um, what the government is doing and, and what is your view in terms of whether you think it's consistent with, Sky, with um, MISA? Well, I think PRISM is, is, to the extent that we know much about it, I mean, what we know about it is, is what Director Clapper testified to before the Congress uh, and the, the very few slides that we've seen so far that were released by Snowden to uh, Glenn Greenwald and then the description in the Washington Post that Snowden gave to Barton Gilman. Uh, I mean, I tend to think right now that PRISM is best understood as as a set of procedures rather than as being a specific technology or or a kind of a ultra supercomputer. And what it does essentially is provides for these technology firms that you've identified to essentially duplicate the data that they're pushing send that data to a kind of a secondary box to which they've given the National Security Agency and the FBI the key. Um, the government then unlocks that box, transfers the data to what is essentially a secure server uh, within the intelligence community, and then that data is subjected to uh, dynamic net assessment, uh, pattern matching, and things of that sort. Um, now, what we know seems to be that some number of members of Congress have been briefed on this. What was revealed by Greenwald was a three-month extension, a sort of a blanket warrant, and it's a multiple iteration of such three-month warrants. So it's not new, and that's actually what I find most surprising about people's reaction is – this isn't really a new thing. It's simply a more recent and not even then an especially recent manifestation uh, really of the program that the Bush administration instituted. I guess that, that is the interesting thing. I think at first there was the, the headlines or the buzz was that this was um, you know, warrantless um, wiretapping. And it, it, apparently it, that is not the case since it has been approved by the FISA court uh, or in some way is authorized by FISA. Um, so that in itself, we seems like we start off with uh, the wrong headline. Um, but the headline we have right now is um, we'll be back after these short messages. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report, and we're talking to Russ Burgos on FISA and um, prison. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Time now for another exciting episode of Pace of Analytics. Brought to you by AnalyticsSEO.com. In our last adventure, our hero was fending off his evil nemesis, Rhino the <laughs> Algo. <laughs> That ruthless rhino has updated the algorithm again, and our website is falling down the rankings fast. 
Have no fear. Use our automated SEO tool to stay updated and to monitor your site with detailed reports. Or use our multi-site project management tool to manage all of your sites to stay on top. Take it from our fearless friend and be your own SEO hero with AnalyticsSEO.com. Aim clear. This is how you sell with social. Have you tried to do CPA conversions using social PPC and failed? <laughs> You're not alone. These days, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube require true specialists to dominate. <laughs> Aim clear. The agency brings definitive psychographic targeting, bleeding edge creative, and killer content amplification to the social advertising table. Aim clear. This is how you sell with social. Aim clear. This is how you sell with social. Ever wondered how you could have access to your own SEO expert, paid search specialist, or social media wizard? Looking for help with your affiliate, display media, or email marketing? Look no further than the folks at Fang Digital Marketing. Fang Digital specializes in both paid and organic search, social media, display, and mobile advertising solutions, and is staffed by industry veterans from Google, Yahoo, and one of the industry's most influential PPC experts. Fang Digital's award-winning staff stays on top of the latest in digital trends and offer tailored solutions so they can audit your progress and build a roadmap to your success. Learn more about their expanding range of full-service strategic marketing solutions at fangdigital.com. That's F-A-N-G digital.com. Please hold while we connect you to one of the most sought-after experts in SEO, analytics, and web development. Office Hours with Vanessa Fox, on demand anytime inside the Search Engine Optimization Channel, only on webmasterradio.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report, and we're back with Russ Burgos talking about PRISM. And it's interesting because the the story um, was broken by a leak from a Booz Allen Hamilton contractor um, and, and not necessarily someone inside the NSA. Um, Russ, can, can you help explain that? Uh, yeah, I think that people are not really aware of the extent to which um, intelligence work in the USA um, and particularly cybersecurity work in the USA uh, is really a kind of a public-private partnership. Uh, a great deal or maybe even most of the country's cybersecurity capacity or capability is actually in the private sector. I mean, we know this kind of instinctively because, you know, we get antivirus software and stuff for our computers. But the, the country's real experts on this sort of thing are in the private sector. Uh, one of the deputy director of the NSA was, was formerly a high-ranking executive at uh, McAfee, for example. So places like McAfee and DGI, uh, IRI and SAIC and others um, they play a pretty important role in government's cybersecurity efforts. So it wasn't especially surprising to me that uh, Edward Snowden turned out to be a, a Booz a- uh, Allen um, employee and, and not an NSA employee. After 9-11, as you pointed out before the break, um, people began to look at this problem in a different way. And one of the things that the federal government recognized, I think, in, in many areas, not the least of which was cybersecurity, was that there wasn't a lot of capacity for this inside the government. 
And so there was a, almost a fishing expedition, really, where the government was desperately trolling the private sector for nearly anybody uh, who could bring some kind of uh, technological savvy to bear on the kinds of threats that we face. Now, it, um, it seems that, you know, in looking at what, what is going on, that first of all, there doesn't seem to be anything um, illegal going on. Um, it seems to be within the confines of FISA, and it seems to be a continuation of what was going on before under the Bush administration. But what seems to be happening is a couple of things. First, um, people are waking up to the scope of what the monitoring was, and there's somewhat of a disquieting um, effect going on where people are starting to go, hmm, I hadn't really thought about that. Um, second, I think on the Obama's um, side, I think you know his base had largely assumed that um, with the transfer of from the Bush administration to the Obama administration, that somehow everything changed, including this. That somehow that whatever the Bush was doing in terms of monitoring and um, intelligence activities somehow were being done differently were being done with some uh, a new different sheen on it that um, would be palatable, more palatable to them. And, uh, and to the extent that this is just a continuation, uh, I think it, it's a problem uh, politically for Obama on the base side. And, and then third, I think there's some elements, uh, which I, I quite frankly don't in, entirely understand, that see someone... Um, railing against a national security apparatus, um, whether it's Snowden or Bradley Manning, and uh, immediately equates them to um, Daniel Ellsberg from the Pentagon Papers and and, and deifies them. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I I see your point. Let me take those in order. Uh, The first on the issue of quantity. Uh, Clearly, uh, whatever else PRISM is, is it's a much larger data monitoring system, though, you know, we, ha- we also have to be aware that there's a lot more data out there, even than there was in 2002. Uh, the estimates that I've seen of just data that were pushed by mobile devices in 2012, uh, estimate is about 1.3 exabytes. Uh, if a gigabyte is 10 to the ninth power, an exabyte is 10 to the 18th power. So that's nine orders of magnitude more data. Uh, one exabyte as an example, to make that real, would basically reproduce all of the printed material that currently exists in the world. Uh, There were 200 petabytes of video pushed through Vimeo in 2012, uh, and one petabyte would cover the entire collection of the Library of Congress. So yeah, there's an awful lot of data being monitored, but there's orders of magnitude more data being pushed by systems every year. So... uh, all else being equal, you would expect more data to get monitored under those conditions. With respect to the issue of Obama, I, I think that's right. That's something that quite often comes up in my classes on American foreign policy. Uh, and, you know, I, I tend to caution students to be aware of the fact that the individual that runs for president is not the individual who becomes president. Um, you are, you know, on the day before the presidential election, you're a candidate. On the day after, you're the president-elect. And on inauguration day, you're the president. And you have a very different 
set of incentives and a very different view and a very different take on life in those three positions. The example that I often give is the, you know, the Benghazi with an exclamation point non-scandal. Um, a number of friends of mine who I was in the army with who are sort of uh, very conservative Tea Party people got quite uh, disappointed when Mitt Romney stopped talking about Benghazi during the 2012 campaign. And what I observed was when you looked at the, the news coverage, he stopped talking about it after he got his first intelligence briefing just a couple weeks before the presidential election. So the person who becomes president has access to information uh, that in many instances they never knew existed. And you talked about Daniel Ellsberg, and that's one of my favorite Daniel Ellsberg anecdotes. In his memoirs, he talks about meeting Henry Kissinger uh, at the National Security Council offices. And he essentially said, you know, Henry, I know that you've been a government consultant, and I know that you've had access to classified information before, but you're about to get some security clearances you didn't even know. And the very first thing that will happen is you'll be ashamed of anything that you ever said and any criticism that you ever leveled because you'll realize how little you actually knew. Shortly after that, you're going to become an idiot because you're going to think that the only stuff that's truthful is that which is classified. But Ellsberg was a different character, I think, than Manning or Snowden. From what we know about Manning so far, uh, he kind of released this information in a feat of pique because he didn't like the way his fellow soldiers were treating him. Uh, we don't know much about Snowden except what he's told Glenn Greenwald and, you know, without sort of trying to uh, tar the messenger, just being a normal human being, it's, it's pretty likely, I think, that, that he painted himself in what he took to be the best possible light to, to Greenwald. Um, you know, Daniel Ellsberg was releasing... In the Pentagon Papers, memoranda that were in some cases a decade old that revealed that the Pentagon and the White House, uh, Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon alike, never believed that we would win the war in Vietnam. So the question was, you know, why did we fight it? And it, Snowden is releasing information that he personally finds troubling for one reason or another. Uh, but frankly, we don't know what the effect of this information is going to be. I mean, we don't know that we're, we're going to lose the war on terror or, or radical extremism or whatever it is that we're calling it right now. So I have to say, quite apart from my reservations about the breadth and the scope of the monitoring program, um, I'm not one of these people who's inclined to sanctify Edward Snowden just because he happens to be the one who released the information. Uh, from what we know about him on the basis of his own testimony, uh, I have a fair number of reservations about him and his motives and, and who he really is. And, you know, there were a lot of differences with Ellsberg in terms of, you know, Ellsberg had been a, a career professional in, in the space. And, and also, unlike, you know, Bradley Manning, who was very young, had you know only been in the service a few years, and this guy, um, Grant, he had had a number of years of experience at, at various parts of government, but he and this latest gig um, was only several months, mm-hmm. and um, and they're both lower level, um, and they're unlike um, Ellsberg, who's disclosing historical information, they're disclosing information that is current and actionable, and um, and that is the problem. I see. It is indeed. I, I agree. I agree that that is the problem is we don't know if 
Daniel Ellsberg didn't compromise the war, although perhaps he wishes in retrospect he had done. Um, but I think there's a qualitative difference between the war in Vietnam, where we were obviously fighting against people that were fighting for self-determination, uh, and the current conflict where we've got, you know, empirical evidence uh, that there is a threat. I mean, you know, those airplanes did get flown into the World Trade Center, and those two guys did detonate bomb at, at the Boston Marathon. So uh, there's a difference. Nobody ever thought the Viet Cong, you know, were going to mount a sort of an Iwo Jima-like landing in Santa Barbara. Right. But these people that we are at least presumptively monitoring to uncover uh, clearly have every intention of of bringing the fight to the USA. Now, um, where do you see this going? Well, the president says that he's willing to have the program reviewed and even terminated. And I think that what that means is he's willing to have the program reviewed and remade. Uh, the, 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 the TIA program of the Bush years was defunded in 2003 after Russ Feingold got a hold of it. Um, but many of its key components were maintained, uh, and that shouldn't surprise anybody. I mean, I recall an article in Wired in 2004 saying that, you know, TIA hasn't gone away. And just, you know, for listeners, TIA is the Total Information Awareness Program that... Though it was um, renamed the Terrorism Information Awareness Program. Oh, okay, program that's right. People freaked that, out. <laughs> um, that Iran-Contra veteran, um, John Poindexter, had ran when he was at the Pentagon. Yeah, although, interestingly enough, uh, with respect to PRISM, it was uh, apparently, by Poindexter's own testimony, um, an initiative of a, of a defense contractor, SAIC. Interesting. Um, they're, they're, quite, they're quite a large presence in D.C. They are. They are indeed. Now, one of the areas that there's a, a potential for fallout is really in, um, in the, for lack of a better word, among the netizens and, and, and other countries. So um, you know, there's concerns that the EU may have concerns about working with the U.S. and, and, and trying to take their, their initiative on privacy issues since you know, they, they clearly seem to may think that privacy has gotten out of control here. Um, if, if, if you can have such huge compilations of data readily assembled and available to the government. I think that's going to be a problem, but I think at the end of the day it will be resolved in the favor of the United States. At the end of the day, uh, Europe, nearly every... When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.